Last week, we started what I said would be a lengthy journey, maybe 18 to 24 months off and on, through the Gospel of Matthew. And we started by looking at this opening genealogy in chapter 1, Jesus' family of origin. If you missed it, I want to encourage you to go back and to give it a listen, as I think it'll help you understand the purpose and the design of what is probably one of the great literary masterpieces uh, in uh, Scripture, this Gospel of Matthew. I said it's kind of like a Christopher Nolan film. Like, there's all kinds of things that are happening in all kinds of layers, like Inception. So there's like the surface level reading, and then there's the layer underneath and the layer underneath. And so no matter how long you've been a Christian, there's so much to explore and so many riches and treasures, uh, as Matthew says in chapter 13, both old and new, for us to look into. But the big idea of Matthew 1 said that is Jesus is being presented as the new Genesis. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, an account of the, the translation there is genealogy, but it's actually genesis, an account of or a book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Matthew is presenting right from the beginning Jesus as a sort of second Genesis, the climax and fulfillment of the story of Israel's longing for a king and Messiah who would bring renewal to the entire world. In the interest of time, because I know you're looking at this going, how are you going to do all this uh, in uh, the amount of time you have? We're going to skip the birth narrative at the end of chapter one. I want to read through Matthew together. We're going to skip the birth narrative as we cover that in depth during Advent. But I want us to pay attention to, because it kind of sets up chapter two, which is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today, the end of Matthew one, um, the way that Matthew describes Jesus's identity. So look at, look at verse 21 in chapter one. The angel says to Joseph, she, being Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Matthew wants us to see here in chapter one who Jesus is. Is So that as we see Jesus, we see in Jesus a reflection of who we are. And we look to Jesus, we see who we are, who we were designed to be, who God is making us to be as we come to trust him. And what we learn about Jesus here is that Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is the Savior. If you see the play on words here, he is the Savior. His name, Jesus, is the translation here of Joshua, which literally means God saves. So God saves, will save his people from their sins. So as we turn to chapter two, what Matthew's gonna do then is gonna take that theological truth and he's gonna narrate it and illustrate it biographically through the lens of what we might call three human archetypes or three models. The Magi, King Herod, and then the child, Jesus. And so I want to look at those each in turn, and that's going to be how we're going to frame our time together, is to look at each of these three characters and to see what they tell us about who Jesus is and who we are and the invitations of God to us right now. So we'll start with the Magi, just because they're the most interesting, right? The Magi, these mysterious figures. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, we're introduced to these wise men from the east who just show up. They arrived in the holy city, Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you grew up around church. Uh, we're in the Midwest, so I assume most of you went to some sort of like a live nativity Christmas program when you were a kid. Um, we, we typically think of the Magi as, we call them three wise men um, or three kings. 
um, dressed in like exotic garb, uh, for whatever reason, riding on camels. Uh, now, the, the truth is, we don't actually know if there were three. There may have been more. Uh, we don't think they were kings, and uh, we don't know that they were dressed in exotic garb, uh, and if they were riding on camels, for that matter. Um, I, the last church I served at um, in South Florida before moving here to Plant Soma uh, was a church that was 110 years old. And they had what, uh, for decades, they put on this big Christmas program that they called, you guys ever heard of the living Christmas tree? Oh, God bless you if you haven't. It, it's, it's like Hollywood squares, like people stacked on top of each other in the shape of a pyramid, but it looks like a giant, literally, if, if it were in this room, it would go to the ceiling and people sing Christmas carols in the living Christmas tree. And we did this, the church did this for decades, 14 or 15 or 17 nights in a row, the staff would have to show up and staff a Christmas program. And, and literally, hundreds and thousands of people would come from all over South Florida to this Christmas program. Now, when my pastor, who, who was uh, my boss and our pastor, senior pastor there, came, one of the first things he did was said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to shrink it down to only three nights. But we are going to still do the living nativity. I mean, this church used to hire Cirque du Soleil to come in, if you're familiar, like, like the professional actors to come in and do their stuff. And so it was a big deal. So we, we cut it down to three nights, but we still had the three wise men riding in on, we literally hired a real camel, okay? So let me just give you a little bit of an uh, insight into the film industry. Uh, there is a famous camel called Lulabelle. Lulabelle is the camel that you see in like Arabian Night and like all these famous films, like that's Lulabelle. And so we hired Lulabelle, and one of my friends who was a deacon rode Lulabelle as the wise man, like into our sanctuary, like from outside, like a real live camel into our sanctuary. And we did an opening night performance on a Thursday night. And we invited uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University, which was right across the street from us. We invited all of their college students to come for like a preview and just kind of like a dress rehearsal. So we're like at this climactic, climactic crescendo moment. Lulabelle is walking in. My friend, he's a moron. He is live streaming this on top of, his, on top of the camel while he's riding in. Um, Alex, if you're listening, you are a moron. Um, he, he's, he's riding his camel in. And all of a sudden, the camel stops. So I'm, I'm sitting like about three quarters away to the front. The camel stops and all of a sudden just starts to like shudder. And I'm like, oh no, what's, gonna, what's going on? It's like shuddering and shuddering. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the camel just tips over and falls into the audience. I have a picture of it right here. This went viral. This went viral on the nightly news. ABC, NBC, BBC, International. This became headlines. The camel got stuck in the pews, and we couldn't get it out. And it almost killed an old woman. Like, there was a 90-year-old woman sitting inches from where this camel landed. I, I kid you not. This is a, you can Google it later. It is a true story. I think the next day, PETA picketed our church and crashed our servers. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Um, this is what we think of, though. This is like, at least it's in my mind when I think of three wise men. It was, it was crazy. But that's not really what was going on. The magi, from which we get our contemporary words magic or magician, were actually a group of uh, kind of scientists, philosophers, astrologers, and astronomers. They were scholars who likely came from Persia, Babylonia. Magi, the Magi were this kind of class of educated elite people who served as spiritual advisors to the Persian kings. Historians say that you couldn't even become a king unless you kind of learned to master their scientific and religious disciplines. 
They studied the stars because they believed, as many ancient people did, that the movements of the heavenly bodies reflected the movements of earth and of humanity. And so to be able to interpret the messages of the stars helped to direct their understanding of human events. And they would often interpret accurately. We have all kinds of prophecies that they interpreted accurately about the rise of different Persian and Babylonian kings. And you see them show up all over scripture, right? Remember in Pharaoh's courts, there were wise men, there were astrologers, there were sorcerers, some translations say. Those were the magi, right? They were there. One of the most famous stories in the Old Testament is if you remember the story of Daniel. Daniel is this uh, kind of uh, teenager. He's taken into exile as, as all of the children, a lot of the young people were. And they essentially took the elite educated class of up and coming teenagers and young adults. They took them into captivity and they essentially assimilated them into Babylonian culture by teaching them and raising them up within the Babylonian university and kind of educational and political system. And so if you remember, there was actually, there were magi advising Nebuchadnezzar about how to attack Judah at their most vulnerable points. When Daniel is exiled and he's brought to Babylon, he lives among this group of magi. And uh, actually, at one point, saves their lives, if you read chapter 2 of Daniel, um, and he becomes the chief prefect and ruler, not just of Babylon, Babylon, but also over the Magi, because of his ability to interpret dreams, which was one of the key skills for a Magi. They, they, tried to, they really valued the ability to interpret dreams. Now, here's what's just so cool about the Bible. Daniel dies. The Persian Empire continues on, and the Magi continue on. But a seed is planted of prophecy and truth about the coming Messiah from Daniel and the exiles that is carried on over the generations in their tradition and eventually hundreds of years later comes to fruition in this moment of history as a star. Now, for a Jewish person in Jesus' day, the Magi were not considered wise men to be admired they were actually considered idolaters because they worshiped creation rather than the creator. They trusted in human wisdom rather than the wisdom of God that was found in the Torah and God's community. They were also considered racial outsiders, despised by the Jews since they were Gentiles and descendants of their Babylonian oppressors. I mean, to put this in kind of like an emotional context that we can understand, it's, it's how some African-American Christians might feel about white Christians who are descended from slave owners who own their ancestors. And that's how they felt. These are the least likely people to be the first invited to come and to see the Messiah Jesus. And yet, here's the story that we see all through Matthew. God's ways are not our ways. Matthew begins his gospel and ends his gospel, if you look at the end of Matthew 28, with an invitation to the nations to the pagans, to the Gentiles, to the outsiders. And I, and I just want us to pay attention to their humility, the, the humility and the curiosity to come and seek Jesus outside of your own tradition on the basis of just a random star that seems to appear. And then, I mean, we, we walk around all the time and you look at them, you can't see the stars really in the city, but maybe you go out to Danville or something and you can see the stars out there. And it's like, you see a star, nobody's going, I need to go seek a savior, and yet they have the humility to wonder and to connect the dots between this tradition and these prophecies that have been passed down over the generations about a Messiah and this particular star. And this would have been no easy trip. They likely traveled over 900 miles, 
with a royal entourage. Any of you go like 500 miles with kids? Okay, like just imagine like traveling 900 miles with your entire extended family. Okay, that's a little bit of what it was like for these people. I mean, it was very difficult. And, and what I love about them and the humility we see is they recognize they don't have the resources within their own religious tradition, within their own ethnic tradition to make sense of what's happening around them. And they're open to new revelation given to them by divine guidance. What a picture of humility and curiosity for all of us who are seeking truth. And so this puts them on this journey that ends with a transformational encounter of the Christ child. They go to Bethlehem. They encounter a prophecy that points them to go to Jerusalem, a prophecy that points them to Bethlehem. And eventually they show up and they meet Jesus. And notice what happens. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. That's the, that's the language of salvation in Matthew 1 and 2. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route, or another translation says, by another way. They're transformed. They find the one who fulfills all of their deepest longings. They worship Jesus. There's generosity there. Whenever you see a response of generosity, it's, again, another sign of conversion. They open up their treasures, all the things that we spend so much time seeking after. They open them up and they gladly give them to Jesus. Gold was given to kings. Frankincense was this rare incense that was offered up in temple worship. Myrrh would have been mixed with wine to create anesthetics and sometimes even to anoint the dead. These are all precious commodities that are offered freely to Jesus. Essentially, they're just opening up everything and saying, all to Jesus, as we'll sing here in a few minutes, all to Jesus, I surrender, I give him all that I am. And then what's interesting is it says they leave and they follow home. They follow a different route, a different way. And make no mistake, Matthew wants us to see that is not just geography. That is a statement of sort of spiritual cartography. They leave differently. They go home a different way. They're new people. They return home, change, and now they bring the good news of Jesus with them. And they become an outpost in Persia and Babylon for their own generation and their own cultural moment to hear the good news of Jesus. So what does this have to teach us about Jesus and about ourselves? In chapters 1 and 2, we see very clearly the grace and the mercy of God. In chapter 1, God is bending the arc of our genealogies, our stories. He's bending the arc of history. And in chapter 2, he's bending the arc of nature and creation itself toward Jesus as the one who fulfills the deepest longings of not only Israel now we see, but of the entire world. Jesus has come to save sinners. And particularly here, we see a contrast between those we expect Jesus to come to and those we expect to respond and those that actually do. There's a complete reversal. Like, we think it's going to be the Jewish people. We think it's going to be the Jewish leadership. We're introduced here to one of Jesus's primary antagonists through the rest of the book of Matthew, the scribes and the chief priests, the religious leaders who are in conspiracy with Rome opposed to the purposes of God, the ones who knew all the answers. They knew the stories. They knew the Torah better than any of these magi. And yet it's not them who come to receive Jesus. It's the outsider. 
We see the mercy of God in that spiritual and racial and moral outsiders are the ones that God chooses to lift up and make examples of faith and examples of his mercy. We learn about ourselves that like the Magi, we are people who are lost. That's the thing we should take away. We are people like them who are lost, who are looking for truth, but looking in all the wrong places. We have the wrong horizons. We have the wrong sources of truth. But we're invited like the Magi to come and to seek Jesus for transformation. Don't sentimentalize this story, right? Don't trivialize how difficult it must be because I know it's easy for us to say, yeah, but that was a long time ago and they were simple and they're not as educated. They don't have the technology. They don't know the things we know because we're, we're so smart, right? We're in the information age and we have so much information and they were just simple kind of backwards people. But they were living in a moment very much like ours. They were living in a political and economic and cultural tinderbox, right? The end of Caesar Augustus's reign, the one who brought the Pax Romana, the one who brought Roman power and Roman culture um, to kind of its zenith. We, we have that kind of happening. And then there's all this Jewish unrest as they're rebelling against their oppressors. There's all of these Messiah-like figures who are trying to lead all these revolutions, and, and, and so Persia's kind of on the outskirts of that, and they're coming out of that into this just scene where there's massive chaos and massive corruption. People don't know who to trust. They're looking for salvation. They're looking for deliverance. They're looking for leadership. I mean, is this not 2020 or 2022? It's the same thing happening, the same pressure, the same anxiety, and yet they take all of that and they direct it into seeking Jesus. And it's the same thing that we need to do now. We are all magi trying to find our way through the world, but often trying to do it in our own strength, with our own wisdom. And if the last six years or so have not taught us anything, it should be teaching us that we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> Is, does anybody want to dispute that after what we're living? I mean, does anybody want to say, yeah, we, we've got this figured out? No. We need a power outside of ourselves to guide us, to save us, to bring us to not just knowledge, right? We live in the information age. We have lots of data. We have lots of information. We're the most overeducated generation in the history of the world. And yet what we lack is wisdom. Lots of knowledge, lots of progression and prosperity, technologically and financially, but so much regression, spiritually and emotionally and psychologically and relationally and politically. And that's where we need wisdom. And that's what Jesus comes to bring us. And so if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you onto that journey to, to take that anxiety that you're feeling in this moment, to take your disappointments, to take your disorientation, your disillusionment, and to put it into seeking Jesus. And I think here we see this pattern of how God draws people to himself. And it's a really sweet pattern. It's not the only way, but it starts with recognizing that you're lost, right? They see the star, they can't make sense of it. It starts by just acknowledging, I don't have the resources within my tradition. I don't have the wisdom to find the meaning and the purpose and the freedom and the joy that I'm looking for. What I grew up with that served me maybe in another season is not serving me any longer, and I need to get on a different path. And then God provides a signpost, right? Just a star. And, and, and this amazing, you're not just looking for God, God's looking for you. God is searching for you, and he gives them a star. And it's kind of embarrassing that he gives them the star because the star is the thing that idolize. 
But in the mercy of God, God sometimes takes our idols, he takes our longings, and he flips them so that they become the portal to which we encounter him. Isn't that cool? He uses nature to be their source of truth. And that's often in our journey of Jesus, God begins by tracing the things that we love, beauty, family, romance, relationships, music, art, story. And he says, hey, don't just look at these things for meaning, look through these things and recognize and begin to appreciate the giver of these things. Recognize that the reason that you want beauty, in a, in a world in which if it's just a closed naturalistic system, that should make no sense, is because there is a giver of beauty. There is a beautiful one. There is a loving one. There is a truthful one. There is a good one. Augustine, many, many years ago, said, behold what God has made, but love him who made it. And then, he, and then just quickly, he brings them into a community where they find truth, right? He brings them into this community where there's prophecy. They go, and there, there's scripture, and as they seek scripture, they're pointed to Jesus. And then finally, they come to Jesus himself, and they worship him. See, we're all worshipers of something. The question is not, do you worship? As David Foster Wallace, the novelist, who I don't think was a Christian, said so eloquently in his commencement speech at Kenyon College, we all worship something. The question is not, do you worship, but do you know what you're worshiping? The idea of worshiping is like, what are you organizing your life around that you think is so worth it that you're willing to sacrifice? That's the language of worship. You're willing to sacrifice time energy, money, attention, your family sometimes. We say we don't engage in child sacrifice. It's a primitive, passage, a primitive practice, but like how many of us are sacrificing our families on the altar of our jobs? The pursuit of autonomy, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of status and recognition, that's worship. And the Magi teach us that only Jesus fulfills that longing. The longing that you have for truth and wisdom and beauty and meaning comes through Jesus. So let's, let's seek him. I love the story, uh, I think I have time to tell this, of uh, Francis Collins. In, in this. Some of you guys have probably, probably heard during the pandemic, Francis Collins, if you've never heard of him. Uh, he's a, a friend of a friend who's actually in Bible study with him, and he is, uh, was the director of the National Institute of Health, the, uh, one of the directors of the Human Genome Project, kind of a big name uh, if you're in that world. But um, he talks about how he grew up in this family where faith was not a thing for him. His father was a professor of drama. His mother was a playwright, went to college, very educated guy, very smart. Um, and, and here's what he writes about his own story. He says, in medical school, I loved the experience of learning about the human body and all of its complexities. And I particularly loved being introduced to genetics. But then I moved on to the clinical training portion, learning to take care of patients with real diseases. This was no longer an abstract study of molecules and organ systems. These were real people with real suffering. One afternoon, I was with one of my patients, a wonderful woman, much like a grandmother, who had very bad heart disease. She had a particularly bad episode of chest pain while I was with her, and she got through it. And at the end of that, now again, again he's an atheist here, explained to me how her faith in Jesus was the thing that helped her in that situation. She realized that the doctors around her weren't really able to give her much help, but her faith was. And after she finished her own very personal description of that faith, she turned to me, and I had been silent. You can almost imagine him probably like breathing out and going, oh, great, here's another crazy religious person, right? And she looks at him quizzically, and she asks, what do you believe, doctor? I was stunned. I said, I didn't really know. Her question had made me realize that as an atheist, I had arrived at an answer to the most important issues that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? 
And I'd arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. I was supposed to be a scientist. If there's one thing scientists claim they do is to arrive at conclusions based upon evidence. And I hadn't taken the trouble to do that. So I was determined to search for evidence. I was greatly assisted by a pastor who lived down the road who tolerated my blasphemous questions and gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, Mere Christianity. Here was an Oxford scholar, a prodigiously developed intellect who had traveled the same path. Within those pages, I realized for the first time that one can come to belief on a rational basis. In fact, I soon discovered there are many pointers towards a creator that come from science itself. The universe had a beginning. It follows elegant mathematical laws, and it's fine-tuned by the way all those constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy seem to have been set just in a certain very precise range to make life possible. As I searched for more evidence of what God must be like, I encountered the person of Jesus Christ. I was amazed to discover how much we know about his life. I had thought that Christ was as much myth as history. As I studied more, I learned there is a great deal of evidence for his teachings and even for his having risen from the dead. The evidence was compelling and it demanded a decision. That day at my patient's bedside started a journey for me, a journey that I was reluctant to begin but felt I needed to. It was a journey that I thought would result in strengthening my atheism, but to my surprise, resulted in my conversion. I'm now a follower of Jesus. What a great story. And I hope that that story could be your story, that you would take this as an invitation like the Magi to search, to read the stories of Jesus and to see if there might be truth for you in there and to see Jesus as the one who fulfills all the longings of your soul and your story. Quickly, the second character that we see here, if the Magi are an archetype of humble receptivity when it comes to Jesus as king, we have here King Herod, who is an archetype of prideful resistance to Jesus and his kingdom. Notice again, chapter 2 starts with this language, in the days of King Herod. We said this when we went through the book of Acts, but anytime you hear that phrase, in the days of King Herod, in the book of Matthew, I want you to imagine um, like a minor key and like that dun, 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 that's, that's like how you should think about Herod. Herod is this major character. I'm going to throw uh, on the screen his family tree. I want you to think, uh, when you think of the Herod family dynasty, I want you to think maybe the crown, but probably, probably more Game of Thrones, okay? Like this, he is a major character whose shadow hangs over the story of Jesus and the church like this thick fog that brings all kinds of violence and chaos. When Herod shows up in the Bible, there's always tragedy in the forecast. I won't tell his whole story, but he was one of the great rulers. He was politically ambitious. He was not Jewish by birth. He married a Jewish princess and converted to Judaism. So that's why he was so despised by the Jews, because they looked at him as a traitor to their people and to their religion. He was super violent. I mean, if you look at this family tree, if you've ever done a genogram, I don't know how many of you have like, this person got murdered and axed by like dad, but like he killed three of his sons and his daughter out of sheer paranoia. Caesar Augustus once said it was better to be Herod's pig than his son. So here we have a man that's racially Arab, culturally Greek, politically Roman, and religiously Jewish, and thus finds himself in this perpetually perpetually vulnerable and insecure place, always having to prove himself and his loyalty to Caesar and to Rome, always having to live this sort of low-grade, sometimes boiling over anxiety, scanning the environment, defending his kingdom against threats, 
trying to control and manipulate and coerce those around him because he carries. And this is the truth about all violent, insecure leaders. On the outside, they look so secure. They look so confident. But oftentimes on the inside, it's because they're so anxious. They're so fearful. They're so paranoid that someone is going to take what they feel like belongs to them. With that as a background, you can imagine how disruptive the news from these wise men from the East must have been to Herod's delicate, fragile, narcissistic little ego and his delusions of grandeur, his greatest fear. A rival king has now come true, but probably not how he expected. A baby is born who's being called the king of the Jews. Now, here's the irony. Herod rightly interprets the threat. Jesus is a threat to people like him who think they're in control, people like us who think we're in control and especially powerful leaders who oversee and benefit from unjust systems of control, Jesus is absolutely a threat. Jesus didn't just come to be a moral leader. He didn't just come to be a theologian or a scholar or to be a religious leader. Jesus is a political threat to Rome, as we're going to see in just a few short centuries after the resurrection of Jesus. And he gets that, but he's crafty, right? He pulls aside the wise men, although internally he's panicking and paranoid. Externally, he plays the role of the calm, secure leader, the curious religious seeker. He pulls the magi aside, airdrops them as contact info. It's like, hey, text me when you find the child so that I can come and worship him. I want to worship Jesus with everybody else. And this is the paradox of the way of Jesus. Worship on his lips, but murder in his heart. Anybody who lives the way of Jesus, that is always the paradox. Worship on their lips, religion on their lips, but murder and deceit in their heart. And we skip on down to verse 15. We see that the Magi go a different way. They don't return back to Herod. They don't report in. When he finds out, he's furious, and he responds violently with what can only be called an act of genocide. He wipes out an entire generation of two-year-old boys in the city of Bethlehem. This has been infamously called the slaughter of the innocents, and this kind of violence continues down through the ages, even to our own day. It is an all-too-familiar scene when a greedy, insecure, ungodly government leader weaponizes state-sponsored power to vanquish what they deem to be an existential threat to their systems of control, manipulation, and coercion, and violence. And Matthew says we shouldn't be surprised. Rachel, the mother of Israel, is weeping for her children. We too should weep at the way that our children are being destroyed. We too should weep anytime we see a generation of young people, babies, children, being desecrated, forcibly dragged off, murdered. Dale Bruner, scholar, says this theological lesson is this, that those who begin by hating the child end up hurting children. Hating revelation leads to hurting people. If people will be ungodly, they will be inhumane. Wherever God is resisted, humanity is attacked. And that goes both inside and outside the church, right? Because Herod is a, is a Jewish leader here. So what does Herod have to teach us about Jesus and about ourselves? I mentioned last week that it's important as we read these stories in Matthew that we learn to identify with the characters in the story. And I don't know about you, but I love to identify with the character of Mary in chapter 1. Let it be to me, God, according to your word. I'm surrendered, whatever you want. 
I love Joseph, you know, the righteous man gets the dream, interprets the dream, doesn't divorce uh, what he thinks is the scandalous woman, stays with her. Yes, I'm the, I'm the righteous Joseph, you know what I mean? But how many of us love to identify with Herod? No, like, no, said nobody, right? Like, and, and here's the thing. I think it's equally important that we see ourselves in the character of Herod, or maybe better put, that we see the way of Herod in ourselves, My greatest fear is that we read this story and we walk away going, man, the world is corrupt. Institutions are corrupt. There's just a bunch of Herods in Washington. There's a bunch of Herods in the church. And we do what psychologists call projection of our own anxieties, transference of our own anxieties. We externalize our enemies. We externalize evil. And that's not untrue. There is real evil in the world. There are real Herods out there. But let us not miss the fact that there are also Herods in here, and definitely a Herod inside of here. It's what Pastor Rich Velotis in New York City calls our inner Herod tendencies. Herod represents me. Herod represents you, sinful human beings living under an illusion of control, grasping after our little kingdoms, trying to play God with ourselves, with our neighbors, With our own souls, Herod uses religion to get what he really wanted, power, control, status, and fame. And this is the brutal truth that we have to confront in the church. We all have a little inner Herod that is clamoring for attention, clamoring for power, clamoring for fame, clamoring for significance, clamoring and grasping for control. And this passage is a warning to us. Don't Let your first reflex be to think about your father, as true as that might be, or your mother, or that pastor that abused you when you grew up, or that political leader that you define as the absolute enemy. Let's let our first look be inward instead of outward. Dale Berner goes on to say, and this is one of the key themes of Matthew, and you see it right here in chapter one. Matthew's Jesus will not rivet his attention, his people's attention, on an external enemy, as most radical movements do. Nor will he forge a burning hatred for enemies by which to ignite a revolution. Jesus concentrates the fire of almost his entire gospel on his church's sins. And that's why he says in Matthew one, he will save his people from their sins. Take the log out of your own eye, Matthew 7, before you look at the speck in your brothers. This gospel teaches profound self-criticism. It rarely permits God's people to descend to the cheaper, easier, and seemingly more effective demonizing of external enemies. You see, we all have an inner Herod. We all have our little kingdoms, what Dallas Willard calls the range of our effective will, and as a father of four children and as a human being myself, I know that like this, I see it in my own children. It starts when they're little, right? Like as children, we say me and mine. That is, that is kingdom language. That is grasping for what I can control and make my own and possess and exploit. And as we grow older, we think that we grow out of it, but we don't. We just get more sophisticated. We know how to hide it. We, know more, we learn more socially acceptable ways of trying to control ourselves and other people. Maybe you're single and you're trying to control your romantic life. Maybe you're married and you're trying to control your spouse and kind of conform them to your image and your vision for their life. You're 
doing this in your workplace with your boss or your employees or your coworkers. We do this in our neighborhoods. We do this in politics. When people don't conform to our little range of effective will, our dominion and our vision, what happens? We feel threatened. We lash out and we do violence to our own souls and we do violence to our neighbors. Just a little confession for me, what this looks like. We all have these strategies of control. My strategy of control is around competency and knowledge. I don't know if any of you can relate to this. The way that I kind of keep the chaos of the world at bay is I want to be smart. I want to be seen as competent, and so I read and I research and I study, and I I want to be the smartest person in the room. Now, some of you are like, you're not very smart. Okay, but for me, that's, that's the goal oftentimes. And it's not something I'm consciously doing, but it's something I've become aware of over the last 10 or 15 years that I do as a strategy to protect myself. And when I feel stupid, when my children or my wife or somebody makes me feel dumb, which is basically just to say the last like six years of being a human being, <laughs> it, it creates an anxiety in me. I get defensive. I get angry. I lash out with my words, and I withdraw in self-protection. Now, I'm, I may not slaughter thousands of children, but that's really just a matter of placement, right? Like, I've been so placed in this sphere, but what would I do if I were here? I don't know. I don't want to assume that I wouldn't have done the same thing out of ego and pride. And I say all that to say you've got your own ways of trying to control your reality, and I don't know what it looks like for you, but if we do this on a human level with our relationships, do you think that you don't do this with Jesus? You don't think you don't resist Jesus when Jesus shows up and says, I'm king, I'm Lord of your life. Every sphere of your life is to come under my control, my sovereignty, my reign and my rule. Do you think that the first response is not a sort of violent, yeah, you can have part, but not all. I, I wanna maintain my little realm over here. Jesus, you can have my religious life, you can have some of my moral life, you can have some of my 10% of my money, you can have a little bit of my schedule on Sunday and maybe missional community. You don't think we don't do this all the time with Jesus? He is an absolute threat to our kingdoms. I love what the theologian Barbara Brown Taylor says. When we meet Jesus and he begins to threaten our systems of control, we do not lose control of our lives. What we lose is the illusion that we were ever in control in the first place. That's the lesson we learned from Herod. So as we go to communion, I want to end with the most important archetype in the story. You see, the Magi is a, is a model of humble receptivity and seeking Jesus. We see Herod as a warning to us about a sort of resistance when the kingdom of God comes crashing into our lives and we want to maintain control. The third picture is just of this little baby. And it's a picture of our saving representation. Nine times, one of the dominant words in Matthew chapter 2 is something that's so easy to overlook, child. Jesus is only called Jesus once, he's called child, the rest of Matthew chapter 2. And by using the language of child, Matthew wants to teach us two things about Jesus and about ourselves. One, he wants to give us a picture of human weakness and vulnerability. Jesus was utterly helpless throughout this narrative. He's too young to act. I mean, I was talking to somebody this week who's a new parent. They're just like, it's stunning to think about the fact that Jesus was like my baby. Like, that's become real to me as a new parent. That's how vulnerable Jesus was. He's giving us a picture of our humanity. 
He's vulnerable. He's a refugee, which is a whole other sermon. He's a fugitive. He's a hunted one. He has no protection, and yet God protects him and delivers him. That's one thing. The second thing, and more importantly, Jesus fulfills the story of Israel and the story of our lives. Jesus represents a failed human race. Remember the progression that we talked about last week. God calls Adam and Eve, the first human beings, to reign and to rule. They fail. They sin. They try to play God in their own lives. He calls then after him Abraham and the people of Israel. They fail. They sin. They try to play God in their own lives. They're sent into exile. God sins. God calls the kings to represent him and to reign and to rule. They fail. They're sent into exile. And now Jesus comes as a little child. And he enters into the failure, the weakness, the vulnerability of humanity. And the whole point of the end of this chapter, with all the what Dale Brunner calls theological geography happening here, it's not random that Jesus leaves the promised land, Bethlehem, and goes down into Egypt and comes back out of Egypt and lands in a little town called Nazareth in a sort of second promised land. That's not random stuff that's happening. Jesus is fulfilling the vocation of humanity and of Israel. He is being for us all that we cannot be. He succeeds where we fail. So if Matthew chapter 1 presents a second Genesis, Matthew chapter 2 presents a second Exodus. Jesus bringing his people up out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, into a new relationship with God, into a new community, a new humanity, not built around being a part of the right family because Jesus doesn't come from the right family, not built around having the right education, having the right connections, having the right ethnicity. He's wrong in all of those ways. And yet Jesus turns the world upside down because he's Emmanuel, God with us. That's the big point of Matthew, is that we are sinners and that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. And there's an invitation here for us just to trust him. That's the whole point. Matthew's like, hey, would you come and trust him? Would you see in these archetypes the potential that though you're lost, God has sought you out and is trying to find you. He's coming to you in all kinds of ways. Would you just simply seek him in response? Would you see his humility in coming to you in the form of a baby? And would you respond with your own humility and curiosity? Would you not be like Herod, who because he couldn't get into his inner world the fact that God is Emmanuel with him. You see, when, when God doesn't feel present, we get anxious and we get angry and we think we have to control reality on our own. But if it's true that God is with us, Emmanuel, and if it's true as Matthew ends in 28, that he is with us to the end of the age, we don't have to grasp. We don't have to strive. We don't have to try to bend reality towards our will and purposes. We can simply trust the one who's already done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The one who says, I am king, and I've come to be for you everything you can't be for yourselves. And that's the response that we want to invite you into in communion. Will we respond like the magi, seekers who respond to the invitation of Jesus and find God's grace and God's transformation? Or will we be like Herod, violently resistant because Jesus is a threat to our power and our control, and our pride. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for Jesus, who has done everything we cannot do for ourselves, who succeeds in every place that we fail, in every place that Israel failed. Matthew has woven together just a beautiful tapestry and story about how Jesus succeeds. Jesus is our representative. He is the hero of the story. And so, God, would you just help us as we come into this moment here to trust him, to see the ways that we are both like magi, in a sense, a mixed bag of seeking and trying to find and trying to make sense, and yet resistant and prideful and controlling and coercive. And God, whether we're here and we're maybe a longtime Christian, but we need to go deeper into that, or we're here and we're not a follower of Jesus, and we need to trust him and surrender our lives to him. God, wherever we find ourselves this morning, would you just do a work of deepening transformation in us? God, you're so gracious. You're so merciful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.